It's Wednesday, October 13, 2021, and this is KBIA's Views of the News. Our weekly roundtable on media behaviors comes to you from the Futures Lab studio at the Reynolds Journalism Institute. I'm Amy Simons, and I'm joined today by my colleagues Kathy Kiley and Monique Luisi. On our program this week, a Reuters investigation shows one of the biggest backers of former President Trump's favorite, One America News, is AT&T, owner of Time Warner and CNN. The Las Vegas Raiders are without a head coach after the release of leaked emails that showed John Gruden frequently used racist, misogynistic, and homophobic language during his time in Washington. And... This is Dave. He tells jokes for a living. Who doesn't want Morgan Freeman to narrate their life? That's part of the open of Dave Chappelle's new Netflix special, The Closer. And some of the jokes in that special crossed a line. We're going to talk about what he said about trans people and why the streaming network is standing by him. There's a lot more that hopefully we'll get to before our half hour is up today. But I want to start with the awarding of this year's Nobel Peace Prize going to two people, two journalists, Russian Russian Dmitry Meritov and Maria Ressa. This is a really big deal for people in our profession to be recognized for this, for their fight for maintaining uh, access to public information. Yeah, this is huge. Uh, The Nobel Peace Prize is uh, maybe the world's highest honor. I think Mm -hmm. there's nobody in the world who hasn't heard of the Nobel Peace Prize. And for the committee to give it to journalists at this time, I think is such an important signal. Um, Particularly, it was really interesting. Um, I listened really carefully to the press conference and the citation. And the committee, uh, you know, they could have, there was a lot of talk that they were going to give this to the committee to protect journalists. And uh, the committee deliberately chose working journalists, Mm. they said, because uh, they wanted to highlight people who had dedicated their lives to this. And they picked two people who are very representative of journalists in danger. But I think um, in doing this, the committee also, one would hope, extended a little bit of shield of uh, public uh, notoriety, so uh, surrounding these two journalists who really are in danger. I mean, you always worry that at the next twist of the government's knife, they're going to be disappeared. So I think it was enormously important for them, but also enormously important um, for calling the world's attention to what real journalism is. Absolutely, absolutely. You talk about the timing, and this is a time where press freedoms, freedom of expression is really It's being restricted more and more around the globe and here in the United States as well. There is one piece that's on our Lynx blog that says, too, that this should be a real wake-up call for American journalists to do better. What is it, do you think, about these two journalists specifically, this Russian journalist and this Filipina journalist, that really serve as that wake-up call to American journalists? Well, they're doing the real work. I mean, they are going out there and doing public service journalism. They are um, turning over rocks that wouldn't be turned out without over without them. Um, it's it's labor intensive. It's not popular all the time, and yet they are sticking to it. And so I think that's really important. I think the other thing that's important to keep in mind, um, you know, I think people today feel inundated by media, and it's true. We are inundated by media. But if you look, at least in this country, and I don't think this is atypical, um, while the number of media sources 
have exploded, the number of actual reporters, people who actually go to primary sources and get information that's useful to the public, that has declined enormously. And, you know, I was looking at the figures from Pew, and they were looking across all kinds of journalism. So not just newspapers, but radio, television, all of the media outlets. And in the United States, and we are a media powerhouse, it's declined mm -hmm. precipitously. So. People who do the kind of things uh, that Dmitry Muratov and Maria Ressa do are, um, it's kind of an endangered species. And I think what the, um, what the Nobel Prize Committee is saying is, hey, this is an important part of democracy and uh, we need to do, uh, we need to make some public policy decisions Maria, to preserve it. Yeah, Maria Ressa had some very strong words in her response to winning this. You wrote about it a little bit in a piece you wrote that's on our links blog for the conversation, in part also really warning about social media and the effects that social media are having right now. Yeah, well, I mean, that's the other thing. And I know Monique has done a lot of research on social media, but <laughs> I think, uh, and so I want her to weigh in on this, but I think one of the points here is, um, Freedom of press and freedom of speech are under threat, not just from the usual suspects, you know, the censors, the bully boys, but also from toxic speech. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the really scary thing, that unregulated toxic speech could prompt a backlash and has in some countries where there are these laws against fake news that then can be used against real journalists. So I think it's a very dangerous time. Yeah, social media is the wild, wild west. We have so many developments with technology which are great for many people and many users, but at the same time, we're still trying to figure it out. And as Kathy mentioned, in figuring out, we have to make sure that we get rid of the bad, but also protect the good. So you have a lot of people who are tech mavericks and things like that, but I wonder how much consulting they're doing with actual journalists and people in the field, and maybe that could help um, improve the rules and improve the environment that is social media. So I learned something that was kind of interesting yesterday as I was preparing for today's show. Did you know that One American News, one of the networks that gained prominence and popularity among the far right over the past year, was actually founded in 2013? Last Wednesday, long not long after we finished taping the show, Kathy, you sent me a link to a Reuters investigation into that network's inner workings. Reporter John Schiffman pieced together most of it using court documents. The big reveal, one of that network's biggest funders is AT&T, the company that also owns Time Warner and the parent company of both CNN and HBO, home of This Week Tonight with John Oliver. I know our relationship is a little awkward, especially since you're trying to spin this business baby off in your deal with Discovery. But while we are still technically related, let me just say this. You're a terrible company. <laughs> you do bad things and you make the world worse. Please don't bother keeping in touch once the merger's complete, although that really should not be a problem for you. You're AT&T. <laughs> it's not like your messages will go through anyway. I'm sorry. I, I love John Oliver. Me too. The fact that we're in a soundproof room and that I don't get reception when in here is, is just kind of proof of what he's saying. But it's interesting because what we're seeing here is a cable news network with very, very little television reach 
But you talked, Monique, about the way that social media and that online platforms go through. And I think very specifically about just doing the research for the story, how my algorithms could all be off and I get start getting served OANN content constantly. <laughs> and that's part of what he's saying, too. You're finding other ways to reach us. And that's not cool. Yeah, it, the algorithms, uh, it's a interesting word. I just oh, that's used a lot. Yeah. I mean, we don't know them. This is not something that's public knowledge, but they're very sophisticated, and it's it's challenging because social media, in a sense, gives you what they think you want to see, and oftentimes they're pretty spot on until they're not, and that can cause problems. And it, it's a challenge because people. I wonder if there's a false illusion that you can find content that is not unbalanced because yeah you can type on social media and in theory find everything but how many people are actually doing that work versus just looking at the content that serve to them it's kind of like the difference between having a waiter bring the food to you versus going to the buffet and trying to see or even a different restaurant and figuring out what's there for yourself it's yeah. a challenge so kathy this this was huge when it first came out last week and it was kind of like oh it's two o'clock it's in amazing. the afternoon and like we we fell into the trap of yeah. what happens when you pre-record a show in the afternoon that then ends up running on the radio at 6 30. there's a big revelation here in this corporation being as heavily tied into this political of an organization yeah, I mean, I thought the court documents were really telling. And again, a, a classic example of a journalist doing tedious, slogging work um, to find this out. But I mean, this is kind of, in a way, it shouldn't surprise us because we see from public uh, political campaign donation records how corporate play players like to hedge their bets. You know, they'll give a little to this side and a little to this side. And I suspect that's what was going on here. But what the court record showed is that some of the AT&T executives were saying, we want this type of content on the air. And I think to Oliver's point, this is the type of content that is specifically designed to play into the algorithm formulas that Monique was talking about, which is what we are finding is conflict cells. Absolutely. The more toxic, the more poisonous the speech, the more the algorithms raise it up, the more eyeballs get to see it. The and more I interactions yes. that the posts get that drive up their views and help with their finances. Exactly. And so I think, I mean, I think people need to be made aware of this, that um, that our natural psychological taste for conflict um, is changing the way we see the world, because the way we see the world is being shaped by algorithms that want to keep us addicted to a particular site or a particular news feed. And AT&T, this brings in another layer to the benefit of that addiction, right? So I don't have DirecTV at home. I'm a Mediacom customer, but AT&T is my cellular provider. Well, AT&T sells limited data plans, and they know that people are accessing the internet. They're fueling that outrage, and they're hoping people continue to scroll to use up that data so they can also start charging you overages and benefit from it financially that way, too. Yeah, and they're probably selling your data 
They're undoubtedly not probably. They the are the data they're collecting, selling the data, the data that the they're collecting, which is helping to feed the yeah. algorithm. So you know, the thing to to Monique's point, yeah. what I like to do when uh, we're talking about news literacy is I invite people, and I would invite our listeners to do this. Find somebody who is demographically different than you, mm -hmm. either different by age, different by political persuasion, different by where you live, and do the same Google search. See what the differences are. Do the same, go look at your YouTube feed and see what ads are you served on that feed as compared to the ads that your counterpart is served. And um, I think it will be highly revealing. Mm. Another thing I like to try to do is sometimes um, I will log out of my Google account because it may not necessarily be convenient to not be logged in, but it makes it a little harder to track my behaviors across sites mm -hmm. um, or to know what documents I may be looking at or connected to. Um, or sometimes I will search from my phone, which becomes a different IP address okay. than searching from a, a Wi-Fi enabled spot. So um, for instance, my cell phone is still connected to a Chicago based account. So my ads and, and most of my Google searches tend to first target Northern Illinois in that six county area for results that come up if it's if I'm looking for a business or a restaurant or something in the source. So sometimes even using different connections helps get you some of that different information. Yeah, and go ahead. I was just going to agree to your point about um, looking at somebody different from a different demographic yeah. than yourself. I mean, as as a millennial who's um, been kind of I'm just immersed in this environment. I have noticed that when I graduated from school and now have um, a big kid job, that the ads have changed. Like I got an ad for Peloton, I'm like, oh, and me and my husband make fun of this. There's like, I guess they know that we make a little bit more money because I was never getting Peloton ads <laughs> before I started working. And I was just, it's just like, okay, the algorithm knows, it knows. And that's, but you know, I wonder, um, a more disturbing question is how many people care? Very, very few. And I think that's one of the things that has started to come up. Well, I shouldn't say started, but I think that was also part of the discussion last week with the whistleblower coming up and talking about Facebook is people aren't really recognizing just how deep they are in this and just what they're giving away about themselves or what the effect is that this is having on them long term as well. And, you know, Monique is a health communicator. I think specifically about what she was talking about with the study on Instagram and the effect that it has on young girls and, and the development and perpetuation of eating disorders and, and disordered eating mentality. Mm -hmm. So, okay, so I'm watching the clock and I wanna make sure we can talk about some other things too. I wanna to turn our focus to the NFL. And admittedly, you are both much bigger football fans than I am. But I'm going to admit, I did know that the Bears were playing the Las Vegas Raiders on Sunday. The Bears won. Go you, Bears. Good job. Thank you. Congrats. But the attention wasn't really on Justin Fields this Sunday. It was across the field on Raiders coach John Gruden. Friday, he admitted to using profane language in emails to describe NFL Commissioner Roger Goodell at a time when the NFL was already looking at emails he sent in 2011 in which he used racist tropes to refer to the executive director of the Players Association, Demarese Smith. A reporter asked Gruden about it Sunday during the post-game interview. Can the NFL and the Raiders and the fans be sure that there are not any other racial insensitive remarks by you out there in the atmosphere that could be published by the Washington Journal or any other publication? <laughs> 
All I can say is I'm not a racist. I don't, uh, I can't uh, tell you how sick I am. I apologize again to, to, to D. Smith, um, but I feel good about who I am and what I've done my entire life. And um, I apologize for the insensitive remarks. I had uh, no, uh, you know, I, I, I had no racial uh, intentions with those remarks at all. But um, yes, they can. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm not like that at all. But I apologize. I don't want to keep addressing it. So that was Sunday afternoon. Monday night, he resigned. He had to know that that question was coming, Monique. How did he not have a better answer than that? What could he say? The proof was in the emails. You would think that after all this time with another incident with emails, people would be careful about their emails. But you live and you don't learn. I mean, this came out because of the investigation of um, the Washington football team's culture. I mean, he exchanged these emails with Bruce Allen, the former president who has since... um, um been gone but this is indicative that the nfl has been and still is addressing the toxic culture that it has had i've done research about um nfl uh nfl reactions to um coming out um michael sam in particular and now more and more nfl is being not only accepting but trying to protect and advocate on behalf of um, people of different genders sexualities race and even now mental health so the brand of the nfl is no longer going to support this and this is a step in the right direction and hopefully they'll keep on investigating and keep on addressing the toxic culture that has in some ways defined the NFL for many years, but we still have a long way to go. And um, this is just indicative of the history that the NFL is contending with. Well, I mean, clearly the NFL wanted to clean house. Um, And I thought what was interesting, just from a reporter's standpoint, uh, the story came out over the weekend, I think it was in the Wall Street Journal, about Gruden's initial Mm -hmm. emails uh, regarding the head of the Players Association. Uh, But then um, on Monday, Monday afternoon, hours before the resignation, the New York Times broke a story. Um, And I think somebody dropped a dime on Gruden because they wanted to make it very clear that this was not an isolated incident. It was seven years, wasn't it? About seven years and multiple, multiple emails. And to your point, Monique, I worry, I really wonder how much the culture really has been addressed Mm. because what you saw in those emails was it wasn't just John Gruden, it was a whole group of powerful somebody, yes, and somebody had to reply to, yes, and there was a whole group of powerful white males who are still engaging in this juvenile frat boy behavior. I mean, really, I would hope our frat boys are a little bit more mature than these guys. And I've been reading it, yeah. Well, (laughs) okay. Sorry. So grow up, boys. Uh, sorry. But, um, but anyway, the, and, and, you know, still you look at, at the Washington football team and that has not really been addressed. And it's, it's challenging because I grew up in the D.C. metro area and I still have people that I know that say, what's the big deal? It's, it's culture. It's systemic. And it, you're right that there's a lot more that needs to be done and that it's, it's being addressed. But 
there needs to be more to yeah, your point. I mean, Dan Snyder, you can't say you're taking the team away from Dan Snyder, who perpetuated this and who engaged in some of this stuff, not the um, not Gruden's racist emails, mm-hmm. but some of the very misogynistic behavior, according to the NFL's report. And then you say, oh, well, we'll let his wife run it. Really? Uh, not good enough. Okay, so let's talk about what's happening over at Netflix and the criticism that Dave Chappelle's newest special, The Closer, is getting. It, too, has seen a lot of criticism for a 70-minute set. The jokes have been called everything from rude to crude to off-color to transphobic transphobic and harmful to the LGBTQ community, and it's leading to boycotts. There were some employees who had been fired and have since been reinstated. But Netflix says, even with this criticism, even with the backlash from what's in this special, they're standing by Chappelle. They're saying this is a piece of art. This is a this is his this is his creative license and it's comedy. Well, comedy is in the eye of the beholder. I don't think it's funny personally but i would be really curious to see about the demographic profile of who's supporting this um unfortunately um issues of transphobia and um homophobia um, have been problematic in the black community and it's something that all of us need to address as citizens and there are people who and it we can't ignore this still find this type of material funny Therefore, it's probably going to make money. But then we have the question of who needs to be held accountable because this isn't because it's not funny and it can be harmful. Um, Trans people have high rates of mental health issues and suicide issues. And And they're targets of violence and definitely targets of violence. And so to make jokes at their expense, I mean, one person may not see it as harmful, but it's definitely harmful. And I would say that money cannot be the answer for everything at the end of the day. There was a great interview yesterday on All Things Considered with a black trans woman who is also a comedian who wrote a piece you can find on our links blog for The Guardian. Um, And this comedian was saying, trans people can take a joke. Your jokes are just bad. Yeah, I mean, the thing is, humor is evolutionary, and as our society becomes more educated and sensitive to people, and oh, because people who are trans are human beings too, with real feelings and real identities, and and they're being validated. And their gender expression is not their only identity. Yes, exactly, and so to, it's just a part of their identity, just like anybody else's gender is part of their, just a part mm-hmm. of their identity. So to bring something out like that, something that has a history of stigma and then essentially attack or make fun of somebody for that, that's emotionally harmful, but it also gives a message that it's okay to do this. Yeah, and I think one of the differences, I read a piece um, on GQ mm-hmm. by, and I, I hope I'm pronouncing the name correctly, by Saeed Jones. And I, to me, this really crystallized it. I was trying to think about this a lot because, of course, Chappelle is a risk taker, like all good comedians. You know, you're always pushing that line. But I think um, what Saeed Jones said is that, talked about how hurtful this was. And I thought about it and I thought, you know, Chappelle at his best 
is making fun of himself, talking about his own lived experience as a person of color. I and think of the monologue from the night that Biden was declared which president. Which was genius. Was yeah. Brilliant. On, on Saturday, Saturday Night, Night Live. Live. And, and that's where he was talking about his own lived experience. Mm-hmm. And, and the butt of his humor was the power structure. Mm-hmm. Here, he's making the butt of the jokes, people who aren't powerful. Absolutely. And it's almost like he's trying to say, I mean, I think this is what Saeed Jones' piece was saying. It sort of said it to me was, it was almost like he was saying, see, I can be just as bigoted as you. You know, and I, like almost being complicit with the very people who he makes fun of. And it just didn't feel right. Yeah, I feel like I'm that there's a lot more room to grow for Chappelle's comedian. He is, I would say, a comedic genius in some ways, but this wasn't it. This wasn't it. So as we talk about hits and misses, if you haven't seen the latest from Rolling Stone about Eric Clapton, it too is worth a read. It's the headline that caught my eye. Eric Clapton isn't just spouting vaccine nonsense. He's bankrolling it. This is a telling piece about who Eric Clapton is and what he stands for. And there's a great question in it. How did we get from a place of admiration and empathy? I mean, remember Tears in Heaven that he wrote after his son died. How do we get to this feeling of empathy and, and admiration to betrayal from this guy who seems to have gone off the roll uh, off the rails and the editor of Rolling Stone said it flat out we are not going to be that like woo woo look at the rock stars magazine anymore we're going to tell it like it is and they did we got a different picture of Eric Clapton in this piece well well let me say this cuz i am a boomer one too many bong hits dude <laughs> she said it <laughs> Okay, this Gen Xer and that millennial said she said it. <laughs> but but the, the piece itself, very telling, and I encourage people to check it out on our links blog, but this really is a new day for Rolling Stone and how they approach this story. Well, it's always good to see. Um, you know, Rolling Stone did have a history of being pretty tough, maybe not as tough on the rock and rollers, but it's good to see um, a magazine of that caliber yeah. uh, coming back and, and doing some tough journalism. And uh, But really, Eric... I think maybe, yeah, one took over the line. So I want to ask you both kind of a personal question Mm. because you see a celebrity or an artist whose work you come to enjoy. It's part of, you know, the soundtracks of our lives. Um, But then something like this happens, right? Like you start to hear and you see that he's anti-science and he goes on these racist rants or R. Kelly. Like, I know I've blocked him on Spotify. I don't need to hear I Believe I Can Fly ever again. Or That was my elementary school graduation song. It was, and how many people's graduation songs, right? I don't ever need to hear that again. Um, Even sometimes listening to Michael Jackson, I can't. Woody Allen. In my mind. Woody Allen. Um, even Don McLean in American Pie after learning about how he treated his, his now ex-wife. How do you separate the artist from the art? And how do we move from, like, is it cancel culture? Do we have accountability culture? Where and how do you even approach that in your lives and, and how and what you're consuming in terms of... Uh, of art in that way this one is really hard to think about um i am admittedly still navigating some of these um Mm. these conflicts of interest in art i i would call them as 
different stories come out. But especially with music, because I really love music. Mm-hmm. But when I think of music, I will say that I don't think of just about the lead singer. I think about the band and the producers and the engineers and even the songwriters, because some of these people don't even write their own songs. And I think it's important, and this isn't the answer, but I think a starting step is to acknowledge a person's flawed troubling, illegal, terrible, we can add a bunch of adjectives history, but then also acknowledge that they did contribute to art. Now, that's not to say that I'm going to be still bumping R. Kelly beats at my next cookout, no. But I can't, I I will admit that I still listen to Aaliyah even though he wrote some of her hits or produced some of Mm -hmm. her hit songs. So that's another question, like where do I draw the line? Like you mentioned um, Michael Jackson, well, I won't play him on my on my soundtracks, but if he comes up, I it's nostalgia for me. Mm-hmm. It's hard. Yeah, I mean, there's a long history of really unpleasant people producing great art, and um, and I think it's just a dilemma. I think in this case, um, you know, you think about somebody who's still alive, and are, do you really want to bankroll somebody who's doing that kind of behavior? So mm-hmm. that's another factor. Okay. Yeah. Well, we are out of time for today. I'd like to thank you for spending the last half hour with us. You can learn more about each of the topics we talked about on our links blog. That's on KBI's website at kbia.org. We also invite you to follow us on Facebook or at or on Twitter. Our handle there is at views on KBIA. Thanks to RJI's Travis McMillan for directing today's show, Aaron Hay for handling the audio, Tim Pilcher composed our original theme music. I'm Amy Simons. We will be back with you next week for another edition of Views of the News.